welcome to Podchipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. starts with geology. This chain of islands in the middle of the Pacific are the tops of massive mountains rising from the ocean floor and built out of layer upon layer of lava, creating landscapes like no other in the world. Over millions of years, plants, animals and insects made their way to Hawaii also. Then, 1,500 years ago, Polynesians from the Marquesas Islands traveled in canoes more than 2,000 miles to make Hawaii their home. These highly skilled farmers and fishermen established small communities. The concept of mauka to mukai, or mountains to the ocean, shaped ancient Hawaiian culture. Pools of fresh rainwater gathered near mountain tops and traveled downward by way of a stream superhighway. Hawaiians routed some of the flowing waters to irrigate their crops like taro, and all of it trickled into the ocean. This system sustained Hawaiian communities for centuries and continues its progressive flow into the present day. Kauai is the oldest Hawaiian island. It has the most endemic species and is the wettest place in the United States. Kauai faces many challenges. 114 species of plant are already extinct, while indigenous Hawaiian culture, language, and knowledge are also threatened by a ton of different pressures. Barbara Makaala Kaamawana was born in Hawaii, educated throughout the Pacific and California, and pursued careers in both nursing and public school teaching before returning home to Hawaii in 1989. Always active in environmental education and conservation organizations and activities, she soon became involved in local projects supporting community management of cultural and environmental resources. And in 1999, she was elected by the Hanalei community to head the newly formed Hanalei River Hui. Makaala and her husband, a native Hawaiian, live on the north shore of Kauai on a small banana farm. I start by asking Makaala, or Barbara, as she likes to be called, to describe her office. We're sitting in the office of the Hanalei Watershed Hui in the village of Hanalei on the north shore of the island of Kauai and the state of Hawaii. I mean, it literally is what most people would think of as paradise. We've got right behind us uh, taro growing ancient mountains. I mean, it's, it's incredibly verdant and lush. It's just rained. I mean, this, this is a pretty amazing place to have an office. 
Yes, I get little sympathy when I talk to my cohort on the continent and say, oh, I was in the office all day and it was just hard work. And they've all been here and go, uh-huh. And you looked out at that waterfall and you watched the misty rain and you saw the birds in the tarot patch and you listened to the bird call. And yeah, yeah it's, it's tough duty. You, have a, you might notice I'm sitting with my back to that view and that I have my desk oriented away from it. And that's on purpose, because if you're looking out that window, that's what you do is look out the window, not get much done. The building that we're in is the remnant of um, emergency housing that was built for victims of Hurricane Iniki in 1992. We're sitting on the grounds of our Hanalei Community Center, which is known as Hale Halavai Ohana Ohanale, which translates as the gathering place for the people of Hanalei, the families of Hanalei. It's a nonprofit group that established a community center because Hanalei is all in a flood and tsunami hazard zone. And people um, have access to it, come and can walk in here and sit down and talk. It's the tradition of this place um, to want to look somebody in the eyes when you're talking to them and have a sense of emotion of your story or whatever your issue is. And so it's important that we talk face to face. Everything in this area is all pretty small scale. So we fit nicely. So how did the Hanalei watershed get its super important designation? This program began in 1998 when President Clinton designated the Hanalei as one of 14 American Heritage Rivers. The community didn't know about the nomination and didn't react well at first. Uh, But when we sorted things out, we asked the community, uh, what are you concerned about the river? And their answer was, we want to know what's in the water. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, we want to know if it's fishable and swimmable. The river has been very important to this place. It's one of the very few navigable rivers in the state of Hawaii. And we don't have big ships going up there, but we do have regular canoe um, navigation and races. And um, it's a very popular fishing river. It's one of the only rivers in Hawaii that's not channelized. So it's a natural flowing river. And it has all five of our native gobi fish, which we call the o'opu. And each gobi has its own niche in a certain reach of the river. One of the gobi has mutated a belly fin into a sucker and can climb thousand foot waterfalls. And you can sit beside a waterfall at night and watch this glistening motion going up this huge waterfall. And it's a fish. And he's going up top because he lives up top because he can get up top. And I want to go see one. Where, where can we see this? <laughs> that sounds improbable. It's like a superhuman fish. Yes, yes. They're, they're quite something. They're quite something. And they're not, they're a wee fish. They're probably at most nine or 10 inches long, at most, a huge one. I don't find them particularly appetizing. They're kind of a bony fish and a little bit fatty fish. But they're a nutritious fish if you catch them. Now, we're very, very special that we have all five in the Hanalei. They're a bit of a canary. If the Oopu are doing well in the river, then the river's probably doing pretty well. Our first efforts in this program were to focus on the pollution in the river. Where was the pollution coming from? Well, there's the question, right? So first we had to say, what, what pollution are we talking about? And we determined that the pollution we were discussing or concerned about was enterococcus. 
And so that comes from the warm gut of a mammal. And it can come from a duck, a bird, a pig, or a people. And we did years and years and years and years of studies. The whole community would show up and we would do these snapshot sampling at 30 sites at once. And it was, it was really something. Everybody really was into it, wanted to know what's in their river. People were getting staph infections when they got cut and things like that. And was there correlation? And the fact is, there's a lot of things in tropical rivers because they don't get cold enough to kill stuff off. So you do get Clostridium, Giardia, Leptospirosis. You get a lot of stuff in a tropical river. And if you're not taking care of your cuts, you're going to get an infection. And the bottom line is it's coming from all of the above, from the birds and the pigs and the people. But Hanale has probably 150 cesspools, uh, and many of them are still legal until 2050. I thought the Clean Water Act abolished cesspools and gave Hawaii like 10 extra years or something. I didn't know, to well, 2050. 2050, they can keep their cesspool. They can't put in one in a new structure. Okay. But we don't have a lot of new structures in Hanalei because we, we don't have a lot of room left. What is a cesspool? Because most people... A hole in the ground. <laughs> a hole in the ground in which you put your poop. Um, it's a hole in the ground and it probably doesn't have a leach field and it's a hole in the ground. That's all well and good if you're at some elevation and you're in some soils that will absorb, etc., before it gets into the waterways and down into the watershed and down in the rivers and into the bay. Kauai is the oldest of the, Hawaii, of the inhabited Hawaiian islands, and it is a sloughing volcanic rock, and it doesn't have that kind of soil. So if you put something in the water at the top of the mountain in Hanalei, it's two and a half minutes before it reaches the bay. It, it's a quick trip, and that's not a lot of time for absorption of anything, right? So in Hanalei, not only do we have all those cesspools, but one half of all the houses in Hanalei are currently in transient vacation use. That does a number of things. The first is it reduces the resiliency of your community because the people that are staying there don't know where they are, they don't know what to do, and they don't have resources to uh, respond or react or recover to disasters. And the other thing it does is it intensifies the use of those cesspools because you now have a house that was built for mom and dad and four kids housing maybe 10, 12 visitors because they want to travel on the cheap and they're all using the toilet, and they're taking pharmaceuticals that our local people don't consume. So why don't, why don't people just immediately get rid of their filthy cesspools? It's, you know, is it the cost or what, what are the other obstacles? Most people that have old cesspools say, I love my cesspool. It doesn't, it's working fine. I don't smell anything. It doesn't bubble up in the backyard. Everything's hunky-dory. Well, you're just talking about its impact on you personally, but it's probably not working uh, as far as the environment is concerned. So a standard septic tank in Hanalei is not much better. You're putting a septic in sand, and you probably have to dig the hole and then put the tank in and hold the tank down with the front of the front loader while you cover it in because it's going to float. The water table is, what, two and a half feet below the top of the earth. So, and then you're going to install a leach field that's supposed to do what? 
you know, I mean, it's water into water. That doesn't take college education to know that's not a good idea, right? Well, that's what we have in Hanalei. And we have it in spades because we can get as many as nine, 10,000 cars a day coming into Hanalei when we're running full on of people that all come this, they've driven this far and the first thing they need to do is pee and they're peeing into the bay. So over the last 20 years, this program, which is run as a nonprofit, uh, has applied for and received some major funding. We were one of the first programs to receive the EPA Targeted Watershed Initiative Grant, one of the first in the nation. And the reason was they saw what we saw, which was we were small enough to get some really good work done and big enough to matter to make a difference. And we would be a good example to other coastal communities, no matter where they were, but especially in Hawaii. And we went from the top of the mountain out into the deep blue sea, looking at what was in the water, what was left of the native forest, what the critters were, what were the kinds of projects that we could identify that we thought we could get our hands around to resolve some issues and make a difference. In conjunction with that, because this is Hanalei and Kauai is a very unique island. So, so what makes it particularly unique? It was never conquered by Kamehameha, mostly because the channel between this island and the next island is a deadly channel and his armies weren't ever successful in making it. But it's also an independently thinking island. We've, there's a book called A Separate Kingdom, and we really are. We're quite different. We're the only island where women could eat with men. We're the only island where women could make food. Our poi pounders, the, we make poi out of taro. The poi pounder on Kauai is shaped like a stirrup, and it's shaped that way so that a woman's can use two hands to make poi because the other one, the other poi pounder is too heavy and hard for a woman's hand to manage. So there's some very distinct differences about this island and the way we function and the way we see the world. And it includes our perception of a watershed. So I remember when we first got the designation of an American Heritage River, they would send agency folks to come and help us. And we'd have these amazing meetings of 25, 26 representatives of all kinds of agencies around this big table that the bank gave us. We had a really good opportunity to identify what was here and what could be mitigated, what could be fixed, what needed fixing, what didn't need fixing. But the first lesson we learned was that we needed to explain the difference in how we see a watershed and how a continental perspective sees a watershed. Because the U.S. Geological Survey guy came and he said, uh, I said, well, I'll take you in a helicopter. I'll take you up so you can see the watershed. He said, oh, no, 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 no. He says, I'm going to rent a boat and I'm going to go out in the bay and I'm just going to look up. And I said, where are you from? And he said, Arizona. I said, hmm, I think that would work really well in Arizona, but it's really not going to work here. So to teach people that our watershed, which essentially we call an ahu pua'a. And ahu is an altar, and pua'a is a pig. And so the, in each land division, there would be an altar, and it would be a place you would pay your tax to whoever was in charge, whatever chief or sub-chief was in charge of that area. And that's how it got its name, ahu pua'a. So there are five ahu pua'a within the watershed of Hanalei. So to the Western mind... A watershed is defined by everything that drains into a single water body, a lake or a bay or whatever. 
And we just go, yeah, yeah, okay. But that's not how we see the world. So we taught everyone that would come. The first thing was, now we know that you think you understand what a watershed is and how it functions, but you don't. And so here's how, what it means to us. And we would start with the atmosphere. So our view of the world and our view of the watershed includes the spiritual world, includes the atmospheric world, includes the clouds. There are 17 different names for the rains in Hanalei. And if you think about it, it makes sense. There's a rain that comes from there and goes over there. There's a rain that comes from there and goes over there at this certain time. There's a rain that looks like this when it comes from there and goes over there. There's a rain that's good for this. There's a rain that's good for that. It's not hard to get to 17. So, (laughs) but they're very descriptive. So the Hawaiian language is very descriptive. So in many ways, it's a very much more specific way of looking at a watershed. And in many ways, it's a much more non-specific way of looking at a watershed. It's, it's the whole thing, which when you're talking to a bunch of scientists that we invited to come and help us answer questions, the first thing we had to say is, whatever you thought a watershed was before, forget it. And you're going to look at it this way, because that's the only way you're going to help us understand where we are. So we're not in Phoenix. We're not in New Jersey. We're in Kauai. And... We know you're happy to be here and you want to help us. And this is how you need to see our world. And it turns out that most indigenous peoples see their world that way. They see it contiguous. They see it integrated. They see it without boundaries. They see it inclusive of emotion. They see it inclusive of visions. And, you know, you talk to the Aborigines, inclusive of time travel, you know, inclusive of all these things. The magic, right? And so it's, it was always important for us to not only be the student, which we certainly were, but to also be the teacher and to say, you have come here at our invitation. Now sit down and listen, because we're going to tell you about our place. And, um, and we're going to tell you about those things that we're concerned about. And we're concerned because there's things in the water that are making things sick or making things not flourish, and we don't understand And we want to know where it's coming from and how we can fix it. So we've spent all these years now trying to address the Andrococcus. Have we done it? Nope. Not even. I think think you're being a little too hard on yourself. You've you've accomplished so much. Yes. So we got a huge grant to replace 75 of the most critical cesspools in Hanalei, defined as those that were adjacent to or very close to a water body, a ditch, a stream, the river, or the bay. And we said, we only want to replace those with the very best state-of-the-art septic system, which means it's a tertiary system, which means it's aerobic, anaerobic, and has UV disinfectant. Otherwise, we're just making another hole in the ground considering our sand and considering our water table. We're not doing much more than a cesspool. And so the EPA said, we agree that that's the system that you will recommend. It was new to the community. They didn't trust it. They didn't like the idea that that it required maintenance. And it was a little bit more expensive. So it would have cost about $27,000 per unit. 
and it would have required about a $40 a month electrical bill to pay for the pump and the fan that are part of the process, and you would have had to have an annual maintenance to make sure that the pump and the fan are functioning. Well, the community said, nope. I said, I can pay for $15,000 through this grant, $15,000 of the $27,000 you get for free if you put this system in. Nope. DOH really tried to help me and said, look, if you just get five in, we'll let you hang on for five more years and consider, I couldn't get five. I got four. I couldn't get five. One of the families, the residents, owns a beautiful home on Hanalei Bay. These houses sell for $30 million, okay? So he's in a $30 million home. Let's get this straight from the beginning, okay? And he surfs every single day. And he calls me regularly to complain about the pollution in the bay. And he wouldn't pay $15,000 to install the unit. Yeah. And so after your pal finished banging your head on the sidewalk, you walk away. And so I've never declared a failure in my life. I'm serious. It was absolutely the first time I've just said, I throw up my hands. I don't know what to do with you people. I don't know what else to say. I, you want me to, if, if I paid for it for free, would you put it in? You know, maybe not, because they really didn't like that, that monthly thing. They didn't like somebody coming on the, in the backyard and looking at it once. I mean, it was horrifying. Okay. So then, since then, and that's only six, five, six years ago, since then, several other people have tried to address the problem. And they've literally said the same thing. Don't call me you know, when you're complaining about the water in the bay. Okay. Just this week, they're going to expand the Hanalei base yard, which is where they keep some of the equipment that we need to fix the road. And they're going to build a new building, a new office building. And I said, now can we put in the right kind of septic? And our current mayor, Derek Kawakami, said, yes. So I just yesterday got the drawings. They're not going to do exactly what I had drawn, but it's going to work. And it has a UV disinfectant, which is critical. So fingers crossed that the money doesn't fly away. Fingers crossed that the political will is still there. Fingers crossed that some fool doesn't convince him that it's not needed. Right now, I have him on, on the side of the environment, so we're hoping that it's going to go. Um, he's a local boy. Uh, he's young. Um, he's not afraid of innovation. He believes in science, which is not everyone in a place like this. Um, and he's he's brave. He's he's young in his political career. He's intensely popular. And don't think I'm not hounding him at least once a week on the phone saying, "Remember us? We're really going to make a difference here." What about what about all the people who've come from the mainland who like you know escaped and moved here? In the last year, when people were concerned about COVID on the continent, they were scrambling to get here. They're here because they're safe here. And thanks, guys, some of them brought COVID with them, which we didn't exactly appreciate. But we're still we're still really good here. And all these people are working here from home. They're sitting in these homes, looking out at this incredible environment and bay that they've grown to just love. Shitting in a hole. I mean, that's what they're doing. So really, this is what the most sophisticated of us, the most, the deepest pockets of us, supposedly some of the most educated people of us 
this is what we do. Don't think they don't know it because I do tell them. You, do you understand your wastewater system? I don't know how many of these people are going to end up staying here after you know COVID is brought under control. Are they all going to scram back to wherever they came from? Uh, who knows? But to the extent that they're here now, and they're benefiting from this place and from this. And they, they, if you talk to them, they, they're in love. The, the description you gave at the beginning of this, they're in love. What's not to love? I can't imagine living in a place like that and not wanting to make it better, to help it if it needed help. If it didn't, great. But if it does, and we do, then it seems to me that's the price you pay. Right in front of us, in that wetland, is taro. Tell us about the history of taro and how it connects to this watershed. Well, when Polynesians came here, they brought their food. And most of the plants that are canoe plants are food. Some were textile plants, some were structure plants, things that you could make houses with. But for the most part, they brought food. And um, Which is just kind of an amazing concept, right? You head out on this journey in a canoe. You have no frigging... I mean, this was the first island to be... You don't know where you're going, first of all. Well, that's your angle and my angle, but that's not true. Hmm. They knew where they were going. How? Well, if you talk to Mao Pialuk, the navigator who was from the uh, Marquesas Islands, who still remembered the ancient navigation, and one of the things that Nainoa teaches is when he strikes out in a canoe... He visualizes the island that he's going to. Can't see it, but in his mind, it's there. If you think on that hard enough, you'll, you'll, you'll get the idea, right? And so they did, in fact, know where they were going. I don't think science has even begun to tap the history of the navigation mm. of these people because we find artifacts all over the North, Northern American continent, the South American continent, the, you know, these people traveled many, many places that we don't think about today. But when they did strike out, they had to eat. So they took the food with them and they took things that they were going to plant to make more food. Taro is fascinating. Taro can grow in dry land, can grow in, in wetland, what we call a lo'i, a taro patch, like a rice paddy. You eat every part of the plant. You eat the tuber and you eat the leaves. You have to cook them well because they have oxalis in them and they make your throat very, very itchy. Um, But they're certainly edible. It's completely recyclable. And then the very top of the tuber and the stem, you cut off and plant again and it makes a new plant next time around. So the one thing taro needs is a lot of water. It doesn't consume it. It just needs the cool water going through it. So it's great habitat for the water birds because all the invertebrates are in there. The birds eat the invertebrates. The birds fertilize the taro. It's a great system. Hmm. So taro, if you put it in a bowl, it ferments. It, it'll, it'll grow like yeast and climb out over the top of the bowl and off the table and down the floor. And I would fly with it to D.C., and give it to the staff of Senator Inouye, who were missing homes so much and couldn't get poi. Oh, my gosh. I was like the queen of the day when I showed up with this big, huge thing of poi. It was hysterical. I love it. <laughs> and how much of the poi in Hawaii is grown right here? 
So Hanalei Valley, the whole valley, is responsible for probably over 75% of Hawaii's taro. It is a major part of the economy, but it's periodically labor-intensive. You have to plant it, then you have to pull it, then you have to process it. But there's a whole lot of time in between there that is just growing. And so it's not a huge labor force, uh, and it's hard work. It's, it's back-breaking work. It's not the larger part of the economy based on the labor force, but based on the value of the product produced. Tourism is still, you know, the mainstay of the economy, much to our chagrin. We wish that wasn't true. We love to find another way to to make enough money to support our people. If you provide a service or a product to the local residents here, you're okay. You're not making a fortune, but you're okay. Uh, And we take care of each other here. So the pressure now, of course, with all these new people coming in is that they want the stuff that was on the store shelves when they came from Connecticut or wherever they came from, right? That's not happening. So the poor post office takes the hit because Amazon, here I come, right? So you come to a new place and the first thing you do is order the stuff you had back there. I, I see, never ceases to amaze me. I, I just don't get it. We're all prone because we're Native people to um, diabetes and high blood pressure, as most Indigenous people are, because we eat the wrong things. And so poi really is important to my diet and my husband's diet. My husband is 100% Hawaiian and was born and raised in Hanalei. And um, he's 81 years old and is very healthy. And that's why, because we try not to eat anything from a box. This is a very isolated community. We have um, seven one-lane bridges, and we have one bridge that comes into Hanalei, and that's it. It's a one-lane bridge, and that's it. The road from the top of the hill coming down all the way to the end, which is a little over seven miles, is all on the State and National Historic Register. Why? We put it there. We want to retain the two lanes. We want to retain the one-lane bridges. We are trying to keep the pace and scale of the place. We are trying to keep the rural character. We want starry nights. We don't want big lights. We don't want a lot of signs. And it's a struggle. It's, it's a fight. One of the ways we protected the one bridge coming into Hanalei is a story that I tell about katunk katunk. So there's wooden planks on the bridge. And the last time they want to remodel it, they wanted to put a concrete bed on the bottom drive path. And I said, absolutely not. When you drive across that bridge and you hear katunk, 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 it's the loose planks. I know they're loose. I know they're going to have to be replaced, but it's a song. It's a story. It's a comforting tune that says almost home, almost home. You know, you've got left the big city on the other side of the island and you're almost home. And um, that story resonated even with, you know, Department of Transportation hardened engineers that went, oh, that's kind of cool. So we, we tugged at their heartstrings a little bit, and they're still there. You know, these are to prevent the huge vehicles from coming, you know, down this way and try to keep some of the larger structures from being built and, and to pe- have people slow down. You know, we ask people all the time as they race through Hanalei, where are you going? You know, where are you going that you're going that fast? And why did you come here? Because if you want to drive fast, there's places in North America you can drive 100 miles an hour. And if you want to drive fast, why would you come to Hanalei to drive fast? I don't understand. (laughs) And you miss Hanalei. 
He missed the mountains. As you and I have been talking here, the clouds have come in, and pretty soon it's going to rain up on top of the mountain, and pretty soon the waterfalls will go. And if you're driving through Hanalei, you're missing all of that. Tell us about um, how indigenous Hawaiian and, and like Hawaiian views shape your sense of nature around you. And, and especially you've been in the thick of all these di- difficult community discussions, but how does your own personal connection to nature, how has that been shaped? My grandmother was Hawaiian and they all spoke to us. My husband and myself they spoke to us in Hawaiian, but we were not allowed to speak it. They were taught mostly by the church, that it was backward and that we needed, um, in order to advance in life, to speak English. So we were punished in school if we spoke Hawaiian. So my ability to fluently speak is very limited. I do understand, but it's embarrassing that we don't know it. It's shameful for us that we don't know it. Mm. But they couldn't shake the values out of us. So they got the language out of us, but they never got the values out of us. And if you learn hula as a little girl or if you sing the music, which we all do, then the values are instilled in you. And I was taught that I am not anybody's steward. I am not the steward of anything. You are not the boss of me, says the earth. I am not the boss of you, says the earth. We are siblings. We are brothers and sisters. We work. We're in this together. So if you think of nature as your sibling and not as your charge, or not as your God, or not as your, your responsibility. It's not my responsibility any more or less than a sibling. We're doing this work together. So it's, a, it's a way of seeing the, the winds and the rains as, as part of a whole, and not them and us, you and I. It's not that. It's us together, together, together. It's hard to put into words, but the way it works for me is that I don't have that sense of hierarchy. Faith, my belief system, is based in the natural environment. And so if I pray, I'm praying to how can I do this together? We're going to do this together. There's no guilt involved. I should have done this or I shouldn't have planted that or what. It's not about that. It's, it's about working together and listening so, you know, one thing that indigenous people have is that observational ability, right? When you're distracted by the sounds and racket of, of modern cities, etc., it dulls your senses, it dulls your ability to really hear and to think and to visualize and to pay attention to, right? So when it's quiet and just the wind is blowing as it is right now, it's much easier to tune in and say, okay, I hear that bird. That bird's not from here. That bird's over in the lo'i. That bird's in the banana. That's doing, you know, that's a banana leaf I hear. That's a palm leaf I hear. It's an observational thing, an experiential thing. And I've traveled a fair bit. And I've talked to Australian Aborigines and um, New Zealand Maori. And I've talked to people in, in South, Central and South America and even people in Europe who are from those places, and that's what—that's how they talk. That's what they talk about. They don't talk about, I'm a human and therefore I'm in charge. I'm a human and therefore I know how to fix this. It's not how Native peoples are. They're so articulate and their voices are part of government and science and so forth. There's no arrogance. There's no hierarchy. And 
it takes above all do no harm to the nth degree to tread lightly, to listen, to stop chattering as you're going up the trail to, you know, I am a talker, but if I'm out in nature, that's not what I'm, it's not what I'm doing there. You know, I'm listening. We have a long way to go to be true partners of this environment. When people ask me, where do I start? How do I begin? There's just, there's just so big. There's just so many things. I say, you start in the place you know. Wherever that place is that you know. If it's the place you're in now, cool. If it's not, go look at the place you came from. Start with the place you know something about, you know, and work there. What's needing to be done there? And that's why I came home. I'm from here. I'm born here. Um, I'm raised here, but I was educated on the continent because colleges were few and far between here if you wanted to go into science, which I did, and you didn't, didn't want to go into hotel management. And so I, ha- I went to university on the continent and then had a career there. But as soon as you can't be from a place as vulnerable and lovely as this place is without hearing from it every single day. In the back of your ear, you're hearing, come home, come home. And I'm not the only one. Um, most of us that left had the advantages of really good educations and came back are called to come back home. If you're living somewhere and you don't know where your water comes from and you don't know where your water goes, then you're not connected to that place. You need to connect to wherever you are. And then you'll find the things that you care about, the things that might need your attention or not, that you can just appreciate. But if you don't know that, what else don't you know? I get a call every once in a while. You have to clean up the river because our drinking water is polluted. I said, well, we don't get our drinking water from the river. And your water's really okay. It's tested regularly and it's delicious. It's good water. Why is that? Because it's coming from the middle of the freaking mountain. And it's, it's filtered through millions of years of volcanic rock. This water is as old as time. Dinosaurs pissed in this water. You're drinking water that dinosaurs pissed in. Blech! You know, right? We're not making any new water, folks. We're not. The water we have today is the water we had when we started out as a planet. Period. That's it. So you would think that we'd care more about it. It's all we have. A huge thank you to Barbara Makaala Kaamawana for talking with Podship Earth today. I really appreciated her wisdom and humor. So many of my concepts of the world were challenged by our conversation, starting with the idea that navigation always begins with a dream, a vision of the destination, so that what is beyond the horizon is always known before it's seen and that our definition of the environment around us, like a watershed, needs to reflect the culture and history of the landscape. In Hanalei, that means including the atmosphere, the spiritual world, and the clouds. We have solutions to problems like cesspools, and yet even people living in $30 million homes don't want to take the small amount of effort needed to clean up one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It reminded me that we won't save the planet through innovation alone. We also need to urgently shift destructive attitudes. One way to begin is, as Maka'ala suggests, to view nature as our sibling rather than our charge to steward or control. 
Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Maybe return to a place that you know and love and think of 17 ways of describing that connection. <laughs>